people are going to be writing about us for the rest of our lives for me, and after we're dead. So I intend to either confuse the issue so much they never knew what was going on, or to try and keep shoving out bits and bits. So as whoever is bothered to be looking at it in the future, the people that really know will sort out, you know, they'll know what was going on a bit. There's a lot of books about the Beatles, a lot of theories, and I try not to read them, and whenever I do, the first thing is like, oh, that's wrong. Everywhere you go, trying to find out any little bit of dirt that they can write about you. Beatles is Beatles, I Beatles, Beatles, Beatles. It doesn't matter, you know, what, what people say. You can't live all your life by what they want. Another Kind of Mind, a different kind of Beatles podcast by Another Kind of Mind. Welcome to A Mistake in Many Ways. How Lennon and McCartney Accidentally Broke the Beatles. This is episode five. In our last episode, John makes the unilateral decision to move the release date of Paul's debut solo album. Unsurprisingly, this move does not go over well with McCartney. Paul then sets the wheels of the public breakup in motion with a press release for the McCartney LP. Unsurprisingly, Lennon is less than thrilled with Paul's announcement. In the final episode of the series, we'll discuss the fallout from Paul's press release and then take a look at the final insult in this game of stupid musical chicken, which is Phil Spector's controversial production of The Long and Winding Road and Alan Klein's point-blank refusal to comply with Paul's written instructions. To conclude the series, we'll examine at length an in-depth and too often overlooked interview Paul gives to Ray Connolly for the April 1970 issue of the Evening Standard. This interview remains the best contemporaneous record of Paul McCartney's state of mind in early 1970. In it, Paul touches on numerous capital I issues between the Beatles that have defined their relationships in years past and have ultimately contributed to their breakup. These issues, among others, include communication problems, power dynamics, growing up and growing apart, the bonding power of cohabitation, and last but not least, Alan Klein. Paul speaks candidly about his experiences in this interview, and will use his own words to tease out these issues and to analyze them within the broader context of a mistake in many ways. Okay, so we're going to open with a quote from Paul McCartney, who has hated Alan Klein's guts for decades. And in fact, in more recent years, still had this to say. It was a nightmare. I don't really like talking or even thinking about it. In a nutshell, this guy came in to rob the Beatles. A certain American manager was burgling <laughs> the Beatles. And I spotted the burglar. Nobody else did. They rather liked this guy, and they welcomed him in. I had the choice of busting the burglar or allowing him to take everything from the house. 
I need to bust this guy or there will be nothing left. I said to people, okay, I'll sue this guy. They said, you can't. If you do anything, you have to sue the Beatles. I couldn't do that. It was a good few months before I could even get my head around it. Meanwhile, he was in the drawers and nicking everything. Eventually, I got around to doing it, but it created real bad feeling between the Beatles. It created bad feeling in the public arena, because all they saw was me suing the Beatles. You couldn't explain to people why. I think people understand it now, but at the time it was a nightmare. I tried my best in the press to say, oh, blah blah blah, I couldn't sue Alan Klein, blah blah. It was a shitty time for me. The only option was to either let him take it all, and all of us just swim along with him, but the truth of the matter is that he was a total cunt. He said I was fine. Don't worry, McCartney loves me. And I knew I was hating the bastard. He was a crook, and I could see it. Okay! Alright, let's do it! We got a lot yeah, to cover. We do! Fuck around. Let's get down okay. to business. All right. As we've already said, the McCartney press release was certainly ambiguous, but I think the other Beatles would have been justified in being hurt and angry that Paul unilaterally decided to publicly imply, however obliquely, that he was leaving the band. That said, John, George, and Ringo have already unilaterally decided to hire Klein and Spectre and to bump Paul's release date back two months. So mm -hmm. Paul may have been reacting to that. Yes. So I think it's understandable that they were pissed off by it and put on the defensive. Yeah. We've definitely got a case of ex escalating moves and counter moves going on here. Agreed. Revenge. Tit yes. for tat. Right. Everyone is mad at everyone now. <laughs> yes. Everybody's yeah. getting their little knives out. Mm -hmm. Everybody's got their feelings hurt. It, totally. Totally. Everybody's got a knife out. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Everybody's doing bitch shit. <laughs> Things still suck in this time period. Yeah. Don't come Things... in unawares and think this is going to be all touchy feely good times. Yeah, this is this is beetle nasty times. Yes, this is nasty times and not in a fun way like <laughs> No, no, no. Not nasty times. <laughs> nasty times. So immediately after Paul's so-called announcement on April 10th, John was reached for comment and he said, Paul didn't leave. I sacked him. Which is, I mean, it is that is kind of a fair thing to say in the moment when you're angry. Like, well, I, I said I want a divorce first. I but mean, it's, that's normal. Mm, it's still shitty, though. If he had said, it is. if he had said I left first, that would have been fair. But he sure. said, Paul didn't leave. I sacked that's true. him. That's he didn't true. fucking sack anybody. That's true. Also, Paul didn't leave. I sacked him is a way of saying I rejected Paul. He didn't reject me. When no one was ever suggesting that. <laughs> like Paul never said I fired John or I am rejecting John. Like John is reacting to something in his mind, but nothing Paul actually said. 
That's true. I mean, maybe it's just paranoia about his leader image, as we have been told. But if Ringo had quit in public, would John be out there saying, Ringo didn't quit, I sacked him? No. I don't think so. No. no. He might say, well, I already quit privately six months ago. But whatever. Uh, Guess we've all whatever. quit now. Yeah. We're all yeah. on the same page now. Rock on, Ringo. Right. He wouldn't be like, I fired Ringo. In fact, John goes on to later talk about Ringo quitting first and George quitting second. So he doesn't have like a bee in his bonnet about being the first to quit, which he wasn't. <laughs> right? Right. And he doesn't say yeah. that he was. He he admits it was Ringo, George, and then him. So he specifically hung up on quitting before Paul. It is very important to John that everyone thinks of Paul as the last one to let go of the Beatles. What, why is that? I mean, Paul is the last one. He is the last one to quit. Everybody knows that. And Paul has said it a million times. He's been saying it for 50 years. Well, okay. Was he the last to quit or was he the first to quit? Like Paul is the first to actually quit. Right. The others, the others threaten to quit. Or they quit temporarily in Ringo and George's case. But Paul was the first to actually permanently quit. Yes. Although I would argue that they walked out rather than quit because they came back. So, I mean, I guess this is a semantic argument. Of like, what does the word quit mean? But quit has a finality to it. <laughs> I, In my yeah. opinion, right? If you walk out and you come back, within a few days that's not quitting to me which is not to make light of their uh disgruntledness yeah if, if anything i'm making light of john's because he didn't even he didn't even go as far as ringo and george did he just said something in a meeting <laughs> yeah right <laughs> and then never did anything about it well he did and then it's like from that point on he started acting like ceo of beatles inc he's like great right. now now i'm the boss mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like that's true okay did you want to quit or did you just want to be the top dog did you just want to mm. be the boss mm. those are very different <laughs> indeed they are well and that's why i'm so irritated every time i read anything about this era where john had already quit the band it's like he had not quit the band sometimes mm -hmm. i i feel like what paul is really saying is that he was the saddest about it that's what i think maybe people mean when they say paul was the last to quit they're like paul regretted it the most and yes well and he, and he was like the left standing there going guys come back please don't leave me they're willing to hang that on paul right yeah for sure and paul's willing to wear that absolutely yeah so you know like who has incentive to <laughs> to argue with that narrative right exactly if, if paul's willing to go along with it for whatever it gets him mm -hmm. and john wants him to wear that robe of dishonor or whatever you know mm -hmm then sure. why are we why are we arguing with it mm -hmm. 
Yeah, why are we arguing with it, Phoebe? Well, because I just think it matters. If you care about the real story, then it matters. You know, it's about people who care about each other who all got hurt. Yeah. And if it wasn't, then they wouldn't care so much and we wouldn't care so much. Oh, that's true. One thing that always comes up when we talk about this press release is that Paul never actually announces the end of the band or even speaks on behalf of the band. He just appears mm -hmm. to be quitting the Beatles. In fact, that's what the headline says, right? Paul's quit the Beatles. So the papers and the readers of the papers extrapolate that to mean the Beatles are over. Mm -hmm. So my question is how much of that hinges on or presupposes, right? That without Paul, there is no Beatles. Because John has been putting out albums with Yoko and the Plastic Ona Band since 1968. And sure. yes, he has been getting asked for the past two years if he's leaving the Beatles. But we we read the interviews on, on the air. John said in February that the Beatles have no plans to work together. Right? So like that in mm -hmm. and of itself doesn't mean that the band is finished. So, right. well, and John and Paul not writing together which Paul has said doesn't mean the end of the Beatles either. Exactly. So mm -hmm. my question is, is there a perception in the public and in the media that Paul's word has more weight than John's does? And if so, is that part of what is frustrating and or hurtful or insulting to John? Well, that's a really good question. I'm not arguing about like who is the boss. I'm not no, saying like for like, God's sake, Paul's the real we... boss of the Beatles. I'm not saying no. that. I'm just saying that like maybe the perception of who's in charge of the Beatles is a little more fluid than you know certain mm -hmm. authors like to admit. Yes, that's very possible. And again, if that's the case, that is another reason why this might be upsetting to John. But for the sake of conversation, let's say that Paul was the last to leave, as has been the accepted narrative and Paul's own testimony since 1970. Okay, if it's true that Paul is the last one to leave the Beatles, then shouldn't Paul be allowed to make the announcement? Mm. If Paul is the captain who goes down with the ship, Hasn't he earned the right to make the announcement? People make two different arguments. They make one argument like, well, John just deserved to be the one to make the announcement because it was his band, which newsflash, it no. wasn't John's band. Okay. Or they say, because he started the band. And it's like, well, not really. Kind of, but not really. He started the Quarrymen, which Paul joined. John, Paul, and George built the Beatles together. And then Ringo Joy. Yes. Anybody who in 2022 is making a straight-faced argument that Paul McCartney's DNA is not all over the Beatles. Yes. Is, is, is fucking delusional. From the moment he joined and started teaching John real chords and brought vocal mm -hmm. harmony to the group and instantly doubled their repertoire and started writing to venue managers to get them gigs, etc., etc., etc. So the one argument is John just has divine right. And then the other argument is that like, 
well they had decided that john would get to annette and like nobody decided that of course not there's no there's no agreement there's not even a handshake agreement paul do, do you agree here let's all shake that at time to be determined john lennon will get to unilaterally make the announcement that he has left the beatles nobody agreed to that shit Alan nope. Klein asked John not to say anything. Is a world away from there was a, an agreement amongst the four band members that John Lennon would get to make an announcement. I really like how you put it. If Paul is the captain who goes, goes down with the ship, hasn't he earned the right? If you're going to make the case of, you know, who has done the most to keep the band afloat for the last three years, then yeah. Unless you subscribe to the notion that Paul's workaholism is what made John and George want to quit. Well, e even so, though, even if all of his crew is like, I fucking hate this guy. And they're like, as soon as you dock this thing, we're out of here. Never working mm -hmm. with you again. I mean, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter if he keeps, keeps them from sinking. Okay. Putting aside whether it's a reasonable argument for people to make. Do you think it would be reasonable for John to feel like he has the right to announce or was promised to announce? I think you can make a reasonable argument that because John had a band when he and Paul met and that Paul joined that band, which they later turned into the Beatles, and more importantly, that from the early days and throughout most of the band's tenure, John held the title of leader, even if it was just a title, that based on that john felt he should at least be informed or consulted before anyone publicly quit the band i think that's yeah. a it's a fair argument that said <laughs> that line had been crossed for paul long ago when they overrode paul's wishes and signed klein and then exacerbated that with the release date fiasco yeah i can see how paul's announcement undercuts john's sense of authority and control over the situation but i think we're arguing that this situation was already out of control definitely i mean i have my opinion but i don't think that other people shouldn't have their opinions but for whatever it's worth even even though John says later that Paul used it to sell a record, he basically blames himself for not announcing first. <laughs> like he doesn't go in hard on, we had a deal, you know? Not at all. Yeah, he doesn't say, how dare Paul betray our bro code. He says, shit, I should have broken the bro code first. <laughs> well, exactly. So that i feel like is something that people take up on john's behalf but that's not really john's argument so i mean i'm not even arguing that paul was right to announce that the beatles were broken up without consulting the other guys i'm just saying that it's not a right that is naturally bequeathed to john and that paul was usurping john's right neither one of them has any more right than the other and by the way paul didn't announce that the beatles were over <laughs> i would argue that he announced that he was done with the beatles and he didn't even technically do that 
And yes, maybe it's the fault of the of all four Beatles for not being able to sit down and hammer out a plan, yes. which they should have done. Yeah. It's almost like they have no manager, you know, mm-hmm. like taking yeah. control of these things. Yeah. Like, what is Alan Klein doing? He's just further alienating John and Paul from each other. It's the opposite yep. of what he should be doing as manager. The long and winding road that leads to your door will never disappear. So, moving on to one last act from Clownsville on the part of Alan Klein. Spectre finishes up on April 2nd and they send out copies of the, you know, the draft of the album of Let It Be to each member of the Beatles for approval. All right. Paul gets his and Ringo says that he spoke to Paul on the phone about it. And this is Ringo's direct quote lifted from Anthology. I spoke to Paul on the phone and said, did you like it? And he said, yeah, it's okay. He didn't put it down. And then suddenly he didn't want it to go out. Two weeks after that, he wanted to cancel it. So we have nothing else to go on about how this conversation actually went down. Obviously, this is a very, very short exchange. And there is a huge spectrum of ways these words could be reasonably interpreted. From Ringo's point of view, apparently by did you like it, he meant... Do you officially approve releasing this exact version? And do you promise never to change your mind? And by it's okay, Paul meant, yes, I give my final approval and hereby forfeit my right to request any changes. Which seems kind of like a lot to hang on, it's okay, but whatever, Ringo was there, we weren't. That seems to be how he took it, though. But on the other end of the spectrum, from Paul's point of view, maybe he hadn't even really listened to it. Like, it's so perfunctory this little exchange like it could have been extremely offhand and Paul definitely did not think he was giving his final permission for the album to go to press I don't know Daphne I I don't think Rigo is suggesting that Paul gave final approval I think he's just saying what is Paul freaking out about he was fine at first Mm -hmm. what is the big deal all of a sudden because even John's response to Ray Connolly was like what specter did a great job you know he never says but paul signed off on that production mm-hmm. he's just like what's the big deal so i think they're both just downplaying the significance of the issue so my take is that no one thought paul had signed off on it they're they're just annoyed that he was making such a stir about it mm. and in ringo's case maybe he's annoyed that he didn't object immediately like within 24 hours or whatever those are great points yeah yet the attitude that paul forfeited his right to make changes the moment he said it's okay to ringo doesn't really come from ringo you're right (laughs) it comes from certain commentators Mm, yeah as does the accusation i see sometimes that because paul has never volunteered that he got a copy of let it be in advance that this is evidence of paul lying by omission 
that he's trying to imply that he was never informed of Spectre's production and that therefore he's trying to rewrite history. Well, how would Paul even hear the album in order to object to it if he hadn't gotten an advanced copy? <laughs> like, is, isn't true. that just implied? Like, what are Paul's critics suggesting? That Paul's, like, genius lobe just tingled and, <laughs> and he rushed into Apple? Where he, like, caught Klein and Spectre orchestrating the long and winding road? What? <laughs> Obviously, he got a copy of it. Right. And also, sending an advanced copy doesn't exonerate Klein. No. The whole point of the advanced copy is for Paul to evaluate and weigh in with his feedback. Which he does. Given how exhausted and beaten up and disgusted by the whole thing Paul is, mm-hmm. I can see why his first reaction would just be like, get that fucking thing out of my face. I don't want to even... I don't even sure. care about let it be right now, right? Mm-hmm. I'm going to do McCartney right now. So he might just be like, I'll get to this when I get to it. Maybe he put it on once and was just kind of distracted or just wasn't in the headspace to pay attention to it or whatever. And then as Ringo says, two weeks later, Paul's like, no, I don't like this. And he objects, which needless to say, is his prerogative is his right to do and that was the whole point of sending him a copy right (laughs) to get his approval so (laughs) right why are you even bothering with the charade if you're not going to honor it paul sends a detailed letter to alan klein on april 14th now that is only 12 days after his copy of the album was received or sent out i mean what is paul's due diligence period like it's, he responds in less than two weeks. It's only 12 days. That's pretty quick. I would think that you're going to give the owner of the company at least two weeks to review and approve the material. <laughs> he's yeah, he's a little busy at the moment. More to the point, you need his approval. You didn't get it. So exactly. you have no choice. You have to pull it. And it's not even a question of pulling it. Paul doesn't pull it or want to cancel it, as Ringo put it he just wants some changes on one song true and he he sends klein inspector a list of specific alterations to the long and winding road and we'll read that list in a minute totally reasonable and totally doable changes and i get that it's inconvenient and i get that it would it would be annoying like i think everybody on the other side klein specter all the other beatles they all have a right to find that annoying if that's yes. how they feel. I totally understand why they would be frustrated too. Because if Paul has been out of touch, he's not coming into Apple, he was interpreted to have signed off on Spectre's mixes, et cetera, et cetera, then it's definitely understandable for them to be like, oh, Paul, you couldn't say anything sooner. Procrastination on your part does not constitute an emergency on mine. But are they justified in forcing their wishes on Paul? No, absolutely not. No one's saying they can't feel whatever they're going to feel, but they, of course, they have to respect his wishes, which, spoiler alert, they do not. The issue is not Phil Spector being brought in in the first place. Paul's not asking Spector to be fired from the project. And at the end of the day, it's not Spector's job to go over the other Beatles' heads to make sure Paul is looped in. That's the Beatles' job. 
So like we said, and like Paul has said, the big problem is not Spectre as a producer. Paul is just objecting to one of the tracks. And he sent specifications in his letter. He said, Dear Sir, in the future, no one will be allowed to add to or subtract from a recording of one of my songs without my permission. I had considered orchestrating the long and winding road, but I decided against it. I therefore want it altered to these specifications. One, strings, horn, voices, and all added noises to be reduced in volume. Two, vocal and beetle instrumentation to be brought up in volume. Three, harp to be removed completely at the end of the song, and the original piano notes to be substituted. Four, don't ever do it again. Signed, Paul McCartney, CC Phil Spector, and John Eastman. Yeah. So Paul's not being a diva. He's not throwing a hissy fit. He's not objecting to Phil Spector. He's not doing any of that shit. He's saying, I've reviewed the material that you've submitted. And these are the specifications that I would like. And by the way, in the future, don't just do whatever you fucking want and then, you know, plan to proceed as if I'm not a concern. And he's Mm -hmm. giving plenty of notice. Yeah. Especially since, as far as Paul knows at this point, Let It Be isn't going out until April 24th at the earliest. And again, since Spectre did the whole album in 10 days, it's not unreasonable for Paul to think 10 days is plenty of time to fix one song. Yeah, 10 days or more because it gets bumped to May 8th and the film isn't released until May 13th. And there's there's been no deadline for when all changes had to be submitted as to the studio. As, as far as we know, no, not, yeah. none whatsoever. Yeah, yeah, there's no sticky note on the acetate that says please submit all requests to changes by april 11th or or whatever i just have no idea what possible justification there could be once paul has voiced his objection and sent a very clear very reasonable list of things of changes he wants made why they didn't just do that this whole thing is a giant case of fuck around and find out I really don't know why they thought they could just keep fucking with him over and over again and he wasn't going to fight back. I mean, I not guess either. I I guess maybe they got away with shit in the past. I don't think so though. That's what's so weird about this. Because Paul is a brick wall. Everyone says that. He's a dog with a bone. Yeah. That's what everyone says always and John knows that. Well, yeah, he is. But he relented on the Lennon-McCartney credits issue. So I could see John thinking, well, Paul sucked it up then. And he wasn't going home on Brian in the beginning either, but he came around. That's true. Even though Brian took me to Spain and we swapped the name credits around and I was Brian's favorite. Which Paul definitely didn't like. Yeah. 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 But he put up with it. The problem is, it's not so much that Paul put up with it. I think Paul, Paul didn't have any real options. Well, yeah, it was put up back with it then. Or, or quit. Yeah, or throw away the only legit offer they have for a competent manager who mm-hmm. might help <laughs> them break through, which would just yeah. be foolish at that point when they're looking for a big break. Yeah, yeah. But that was a very different time back then. 
Now Paul is rich and famous and confident, and he does not need Klein. He doesn't. In any way. Yeah. So that's a big miscalculation on John's part. Because I do think that that's probably what John and, and maybe the others are thinking. And maybe they thought since they were all on their one side against Paul, it was sort of a safety in numbers thing. Yes. Maybe they thought if we all stick together and we all put our collective foot down, plus we have Klein the bulldog on our side, we will have the leverage finally to overcome Paul's resistance. And I understand they felt Paul had been too domineering and that they were resentful of him and they wanted to assert themselves and fight back. But they really, really chose the wrong battles. So Tony Bramwell has a story about this incident in his book. I'll go ahead and read it. When Paul heard the Let It Be album mixed by Phil Spector, particularly what he referred to as Spector's sickly sweet version of The Long and Winding Road, he was furious. He rushed straight into Apple and berated Klein so loudly you could hear him throughout the building. It's not us anymore, he shouted. Klein's rude comment was, your original material sucked. It was unusable. John thinks Phil is a genius, and I agree with him. Okay. Well, that's the case closed. <laughs> okay. I, I'm not sure people were using suck colloquially in that fashion at that time. It's <laughs> hmm. a good point. But, but that's the gist of yeah, yeah. The, po the point stands. Yeah, exactly. So maybe the dialogue is made up. Yeah. Little embellishment there. Um, for what it's worth, I cross-checked a stack of books looking for this story, and I couldn't find it anywhere else. Philip Norman says in his Paul bio that Paul phoned Klein as soon as he heard the album, which was within a few days of receiving it. But that was the closest I got to corroborating this. But in any case, if the Tony Bramwell story is real, then Paul confronted Klein before the 14th. So in less than 12 days, as we as we kept hammering on, you know, who knows? He might have come right, in right. like five days later, yelled at Klein and then gone home and and fumed. And then he might have talked to Eastman. Eastman might have been like, write yeah, a memo, put everything put in, in writing. writing and address it mm -hmm. to Klein. Don't send it to Spectre. Don't right. send it to John Lennon. Send it to Alan Klein. Mm -hmm. Say what your specifications are and just copy me and Spectre on it. Yeah. That sounds highly likely. Yeah. Setting aside the fact that Paul has been adamant, very, very clear that he does not consent to or agree with Klein's management. Okay. How in the hell would Klein, as the Beatles' manager, be permitted to exercise creative control over Beatles' music? Can we ask that question? That That is mind-boggling. Well, yeah. Would Brian Epstein ever be allowed to override John's creative choices on his songs? Of course not. Could Brian tell John... Too bad, John. We like George Martin's choices, and you no longer have a say in how Strawberry Fields is going to be produced. It's preposterous to even think that, right? Yes. Yes, on its face, it's absurd. In fact, there's that famous story of Brian 
making some musical suggestion or other in the studio one time and John immediately shutting him down oh. and Brian never did it again. Well, there you go. How in the world is this not a whole fucking chapter in every Beatles book? First of all, in all the books that I checked, Doggett was the only one that included Paul's letter to Klein or even mentioned it. Yeah. Well, and he dismissed it completely. Well, as he, being... <laughs> yeah. I'll I'll share with you what he what he wrote. He wrote, but his prevarication was fatal. McCartney was imbued with the spirit of Hamlet, neglecting to act until only failure could follow. So that's a nice taste of Doggett there. For so you. that's so that's Doggett. We could we could share more, but Phoebe about had an aneurysm. I looking I, up this. I did. A, a lot of people enjoy this book. On the the following page, he calls McCartney a scared child alone in a dark forest of intrigue. So if you like that type of stuff, then you know, the, then please check out this book. Anyways, because um, you're in for a treat. But so Dogger was the only one who mentioned Klein's letter. <laughs> And very few of these books even mention the long and winding road being a problem in the first place. And it was known. It was well known. Well, it was well known at the time because Paul mentions it in his Evening Standard interview. There are only two quotes in that huge interview that ever get pulled out and quoted. But Right! Yeah. And, and no Beatles books think that this is an important enough issue to bring up! what well this is where yeah this is where i start to think conspiracy maybe all those, <laughs> yes maybe all those books have an agenda if not a conspiracy from book to book then at least the author has an agenda i because mean is it, that more likely or is laziness more likely well i uh you know my motto you know i i always think <laughs> <laughs> no i don't know your motto my motto which i apply to almost everything in life is don't assume malice when incompetence will do like uh, I, I occam's razor it's a, probably mm -hmm. incompetence first and then malice although they often go hand in hand but sure. i don't think there's a conspiracy and there doesn't even have to be an explicit agenda but when all the major people writing the history of the beatles have the exact same perspective and are all buddies and never challenge any of the conventional wisdom it just becomes an e echo chamber yeah which is why you want to have peer review and diversity exactly so here's a question was this whole conflict a deliberate ploy from the beginning to provoke paul either just to force him to engage or to actively demoralize him or both Gilmore writes, during this time, Spectre never consulted McCartney about the changes he was making, which may have been Klein and Lennon's intention. After finally hearing Spectre's new mixes, McCartney requested changes, but Klein told him it was too late. Yeah, so I assume that means that we can't prove that John and Klein maliciously kept Paul out of the loop. Maybe they just forgot to consult him. Paul's quote from Beatles Anthology reads, Alan Klein decided, possibly having consulted the others, but certainly not me, that Let It Be would be reproduced for disc by Phil Spector. So now we were getting a reproducer instead of just a producer. And he added on, 
all sorts of stuff, singing ladies on the long and winding road, backing that I perhaps wouldn't have put on. I mean, I don't think it was the worst record ever, but the fact that now people were putting stuff on our records that certainly one of us didn't know about was wrong. I'm not sure whether the others knew about it. It was just, okay, get it finished up. Go on, do whatever you want. We were all getting fed up. Um, yeah, so them just ignoring his wishes is egregious and aggressive. And that's what's going down. I just feel kind of gross that this is even something that we have to make the case for. That, okay. <laughs> that Paul McCartney is allowed to have opinions about his own music like that is so gross i can't even believe there's a counter argument to this like having to give equal time to the to the other side like what is the other side that he shouldn't be allowed to make specifications on the long and winding road it's that it's too late since paul has been not coming into apple office or even talking to the others means that he now doesn't have the right to make changes after the fact like you know snooze you lose kind of thing okay. yeah or that, you know his conversation with Ringo constituted official approval that he as the owner of the company was not allowed to later rescind after a few days I never know if John is taking Klein's lead or if Klein is taking John's lead in terms mm -hmm. of dealing with Paul, you know? I could definitely see, and it's certainly more palatable for me to think that Klein took this antagonistic approach to Paul and John kind of got swept up in it and got excited by it and was like, yeah, yeah, go at him, Alan. You know, get it for me, Alan, <laughs> you know? Like, yeah. Tell Paul to shut the fuck up. <laughs> um, Because mm -hmm. I can see John being swept up in that. And also if somebody else is validating his bad impulses, then yep. it's not going to make him feel as guilty about it so you know he's yeah. like oh okay so it is okay to, to be like this everyone yeah paul does deserve some rough treatment yeah go in and then it just sort of escalates from there mm -hmm. or if and maybe it's a combination of this you know maybe klein saw something in john that he was able to exploit you know like maybe klein spotted a bully in john oh i think he absolutely did and he was like, hey, brother, I know yeah. how to deal with people. I know you know how to deal with people, John, because you're the man, right? Mm -hmm. And You have what it, you got what it takes. Exactly. Exactly. Paul doesn't have what it takes. And he just appealed to that side of John. Yeah. And they just fed each other. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. It's just such a corrupt an obvious setup <laughs> like, yeah it's just one of the most frustrating elements of the Beatles story yeah. it's a shame it's a damn shame In December 1970, John Lennon famously gave a sprawling, exclusive interview to Jan Wenner for Rolling Stone. This interview, dubbed Lennon Remembers by Wenner, helped put Rolling Stone magazine on the map and was even printed as a book later in the 70s. For these reasons, 
Lennon remembers has set the tone and talking points of Beatles historiography ever since. But it is crucial to note that John was fresh from primal scream therapy at the time, that he would go on to contradict much of what he said in the interview, that he would outright admit later that he lied in it, and that he tried to block Wenner from publishing it as a book. None of this put a dent in most Beatle writers' enthusiasm for quoting the interview liberally and indiscriminately. Yeah, I mean, we, we use it too, but we always let you know when we're quoting from Lennon Remember, so the context is always there. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, in recent years, people like Mikhail Gilmore and Aaron Torkelson Weber, and more recently, Joe Hagen, have helped shift the Beatles' narrative towards a more balanced view of events and a fuller range of perspectives. So we are nominating a new starting point for looking at the Beatles' story and breakup. Not to replace London Remembers, but just to balance it out. This interview predates London Remembers by six months, and it is McCartney's April 1970 interview with Ray Connolly for the Evening Standard. Disappointingly, but not surprisingly, this interview is very rarely quoted in any great detail. And in fact, only a few quotes are ever even used at all beyond providing a pithy punchline to the final chapter of a Beatles book. So we're going to treat this interview, this important piece of history, as Paul's McCartney Remembers interview. It's a lengthy and thorough conversation in which Paul is candid about his feelings and clear about his wishes for the future. He discusses several of the issues we've highlighted in this series as major contributors to the breakup. So we will pull those out as we go along and give our analysis. Obviously, we don't have time to read the entire piece aloud, but we'll link it in the show notes for anyone who's interested. Clearly, Paul's objective here is to communicate to the world that the breakup is not his fault. Or at least not his choice. As we have mentioned already, you will probably recognize <laughs> a few little chestnuts that are always pulled out and quoted from one writer to another. But there are also a ton of important quotes that were new and surprising to me, at least. And to me as well. Okay, so Paul says... It was all a misunderstanding. I just thought, Christ, what have I done? Now we're in for it. And my stomach started churning up. I never intended the statement to mean Paul McCartney quits Beatles. Nor, he says, was it intended as a publicity stunt, which is something that has been widely suggested and which has upset him. <laughs> widely suggested, most notably by John. A few days ago, Paul McCartney decided to break his year-long silence and be interviewed. He wanted to clear up the confusion about his relations with the other Beatles and Alan Klein and to kill the rumors that he was now, quote, a hermit living in a cave somewhere with a 10-foot beard. He wanted to show that he really was a happily married man with a nice family and a good life, quote from Paul, but most of all, he wanted to talk, to work things out in conversation, as much, I suspect, for his own benefit as anything. That's... That's interesting to me. I'm happy with a nice family and a good life. But this is yeah. the same period that he will say in the future 
I couldn't face any press because I couldn't handle answering the question, are you happy? Yeah. Well, he says happily married. But he he does he specifically doesn't like rumors that he is not doing well. Mm. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah. Because he he's not a hermit living in a cave. So yes. So he's definitely still covering up his depression at this point. Which <laughs> let yeah. me be clear. So he's not being one hundred percent candid about all of his feelings. All of the time. <laughs> all of the time, especially the ones that have to do with being depressed, because he's Paul McCartney, and what right does he have to be depressed? Even though, yes, I am depressed. Thank you for asking. I'm right? Sure you care so much about my mental care, health. Yes. Okay, so they go to lunch, and <laughs> Connolly says that with hardly moments for hellos, Paul launched into his theme. He wanted to put it all straight to show that no one was to blame for what happened. And when after two and a half hours nonstop talking, he had cleared up his mind and mine too. He laughed, said he felt better now, got into his car and went home. <laughs> <laughs> Leaving Ray Connolly spinning with little birdies <laughs> flying and tweeting around his head. Oh my God. Poor Paul, man. Uh Paul says, I don't think I need a manager in the old sense that Brian Epstein was our manager. All I want are paid advisors who will do what I want them to do. <laughs> and that's what I've got. God bless him. Oh, my God. Okay. Do tell, Paul. If the others want Klein, well, that's up to them. But I've never signed a contract with him. He doesn't represent me. I'm sure Eastman is better for me so good okay i love that he said to the evening standard i've never signed a contract with him good yeah. for paul the real breakup in the beatles was months ago first ringo left when we were doing the white album because he said he didn't think it was any fun playing with us anymore but after two days of us telling him he was the greatest drummer in the world for the beatles which i believe he came back then George left when we were making Abbey Road because he didn't think he had enough say in our records, which was fair enough. After a couple of days, he came back. I think he means let it be. Yeah, I noticed, I noticed that too. It was let it be, but I, you yeah. know, who cares? Why does he say he was the greatest drummer in the world for the Beatles? Like, Paul, just say he's the greatest drummer in the world. It's I know. I know because my brain works the same way it's like it works the same i have way. a pathological need to say precisely what i mean though i know that his brain will not allow him to say greatest drummer in the world because he's like i technically wouldn't rate him the best just say it paul yeah just, just say, say it. it i know or don't say I anything or, or don't just, say anything just don't bring it up exactly it sounds worse when you qualify it don't Yep. although ringo sent paul a telegram after the story and said he liked it so apparently ringo didn't take offense yeah well paul says some super nice things about the beatles later on but well interesting thing here is that he says the real breakup in the beatles was months ago and he's about mm -hmm. to you know he's about to go into the story of how john quit right so for paul at least here He's saying the real breakup is when John quit. Right. 
just but he's but he's also contextualizing it by saying and other people have left too you know yeah things, but he things have not always been sunny in Beetleland. well let me tell you oh sure no he's 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 telling the full story and the mm-hmm. full story is Ringo left first, then George, and then John. But he's still saying for Paul, the breakup was real when John quit. And for John, yeah. the breakup is real when Paul quits. That's consistent. Yeah. And it makes sense. No offense to George and Ringo, but, you know. But John and Paul are married. Yeah. So Paul gives a quick rundown of the divorce meeting and says that John said, I think you're daft. And then he adds something a little different than he usually does. He goes on to say, and I said, what do you mean? I mean, he is John Lennon, and I'm a bit scared of all that rapier wit we hear about. And he just said again, I think you're daft. I'm leaving the Beatles. I want a divorce. Yeah, that really struck me when I was reading this. Maybe he's trying to communicate to John there you hurt me, buddy. I just don't like that word that he said scared. Why? Because you shouldn't be afraid of your partner. I, I don't know what to make of it. It's a little offhand, but... And he's saying I'm scared of the wit, but he doesn't. he doesn't say, like, I'm scared that John is going to set my life on fire. Although that is what happens. (laughs) Yeah. Saying I'm scared of his rapier wit is like, that's not what you're scared of. Like, it's not what he's, no, it's like what he's, you're scared of a zinger. (laughs) Like that. Right, right, right. By scared, maybe he means not so much scared of a witty zinger, like you said, (laughs) but rather that he felt apprehensive because in that divorce meeting, he could sense something big was bubbling up in John. Maybe he sensed some sort of hammer was about to fall. Because mm-hmm. he knows John well, but the public doesn't know that about John. What they're familiar with is John's rapier wit, quote-unquote. So mm. so Paul goes with that for the purposes of this interview to explain <laughs> why he was discomfited in some way. Yeah, I also feel like every time Paul says rapier wit, he it's just like code for him saying like, John could be an absolute rap bastard. <laughs> well, for sure, of course. Because of didn't course, he, that's he, what he means. He called him like when he was talking about the how fencing, do you sleep. Yes, yeah, the exactly. fencing champion of East Cheem, if that's how it's pronounced. Which is like which just is probably so, it, not. it's it's just so over the top, like chivalrous British gentleman. No, I I, I I think he's being a little ironic though. Seriously, because mm. it's like. Yeah. No, John would like <laughs> kick you in the nuts. I mean, he wasn't, he, he was the opposite of like a gentlemanly, <laughs> you know, like. A guard. Exactly. Yeah. Like, first, let's go over the rules, McCartney. And, right. you know, <laughs> we'll meet at such time and no kicking below the belt. You know, he's like, <laughs> fucking, no. like street brawler. Right? Yeah, true. <laughs> That's so true. So Paul goes on. He says. Well, none of us knew what to do, but we decided to wait until about March or April of this year until our film Let It Be came out. But I was bored. I like to work. I'm an active person. Sit me down with a guitar and let me go. That's my job. (laughs) Oh my God, Paul, we know. (laughs) 
Oh. <laughs> that should be the warning <laughs> sticker that comes with Paul. Yes. I'm anybody. an active person. <laughs> yeah. I get bored. I like to work. So what does we decided to wait until let it be mean? I don't know. I know you like using the royal we, Paul, but it does get confusing sometimes. Wait to what? To talk <laughs> again? To reevaluate? Or to announce the breakup and start divorce proceedings? Because he's talking about the band being in kind of stasis. Mm-hmm. It, and he kind of makes it sound like there was a vague plan to postpone the announcement which is everybody's understanding right but Mm -hmm. in the meantime no one took any action which we also know was true and he's making the a point for the record that john never personally reached out to him to restart the band i don't know i look askance at this (laughs) he decided to wait until about march or april of this year Either Paul's talking about something like an event that we do not know about and that no one else has ever talked about before, or he's he's covering his ass a little bit. Yeah. Well, he says none of us knew what to do. We decided to wait until, and then he says this vague shit, until March or April, until our film came out. Well, you're, it's, honey, it's April 22nd and the film has still not come out, so... (laughs) Yeah. Looks like there's just like a lot of moving parts here. Mm-hmm. That is a point where he would be better off if he just spoke bluntly more often and was was willing to piss people off. But he just did speak bluntly and the world came down on his head. Well, that's a good point. Like he's he's reacting to accusations of being the person who ruined the Beatles right now. So if he's trying to deflect and be like that's this true. was in the works. This was in the works. Maybe I jumped the gun, but it was going to come out at some point. Well, and it is complicated. It's not really yes. a and dry thing. No. All sorts of unspoken, half-spoken, assumed, interpreted yeah. smoke signals are going on. And if Paul's been cut off from the other Beatles for the most part, specifically from John, and has sort of just been in his own head, mm. you know, that can warp what you think other people must be thinking. Yeah, that's true. Because your brain sort of becomes an echo chamber after a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And the things that you start thinking about yourself, you assume other people are thinking too. Yeah. He tells some cute little anecdotes about the recording of the McCartney album. When we had to go to the studios, Linda would make the booking and we'd take some sandwiches and a bottle of grape juice and put the baby on the floor. And it was all like a holiday. So as a natural turn of events from looking for something to do, I found that I was enjoying working alone as much as I'd enjoyed the early days of the Beatles. I haven't really enjoyed the Beatles in the last two years. (laughs) oh my god oh my god that's huge why is that not in every book what so that's kind of sad all right well let's talk about the last two years so since 1968 i haven't really enjoyed the beatles since 1968 what happened in 1968 
Well, Yoko Ono started coming to the studio every day with John. Well, that's right. Hmm. John and Paul had some kind of falling out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he's sort of stating the obvious, which is things haven't been the same since India. Yeah. Okay. Okay. He, he goes on to say... More than anything, he says. I'll just take out, he says. More than anything, I would love the Beatles to be on top of their form and for them to be as productive as they were. But things have changed. We are all individuals. Even on Abbey Road, we don't do harmonies like we used to. I would have liked to have sung harmony with John. And I think he would have liked me to. But I was too embarrassed to ask him. And I don't work to the best of my abilities in that situation. That's so sad. Oh. Yeah. I didn't leave the Beatles. The Beatles have left the Beatles. But no one wants to be the one to say the party's over. Last year, John said he wanted a divorce. All right, so do I. I want to give him that divorce. I hate this trial separation because it's just not working. Personally, I don't think John could do the Beatles thing now. I don't think it would be good for him. I love I didn't leave the Beatles. The Beatles have left the Beatles, but no one wants to be the one to say the party's over. Like, I think that's just... I lo- uh, that's It almost sounds like song lyrics. Yeah, it's just so poetic. I love that's it. That's true. Yeah. I never get tired of that. <laughs> I know. Well, guess what? Nerd alert. <laughs> it's iambic. Oh, shut up. That's awesome. I don't even yeah. really know what that means, but I'm very impressed. <laughs> I get the reference, but I'll be honest with you. I don't know what that means. <laughs> it's just the where the where the emphases are. I haven't left the Beatles. The Beatles have left the Beatles, but no one wants to be the one to say the party's over. Oh, that's beautiful. So there's a slight hiccup in there, but that's okay. Last year, John said he wanted a divorce. All right, so do I. I want to give him that divorce. Thoughts? (laughs) I think it is exactly what it says on the tin. (laughs) I hate this trial separation because it's just not working. What's not working? Paul's heart is not growing fonder? (laughs) John's heart is not growing fonder? What? Oh, well, both. Yeah. From Paul's I mean... perspective. Well, he said, I, I want to give him that divorce. I hate this trial separation because it's just not working. So I-, I take that to mean like, if this was supposed to be a trial separation period, it, it, I'm the verdict I'm, is in the ver- Yeah, exactly. Like that's, <laughs> that's where I've ended up. I've ended up yeah. John that I want, I want the divorce too. Yeah. If this was supposed to be a time where I reflect and think about what I want, mm-hmm. I hate being in limbo. Mm-hmm. I hate yes. I hate this waiting period. There's no point to it. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I can't start my life until yep we're divorced. Yeah. Like let's just do it. Why are we fucking around? Let's just get it done. Yeah. And then what do you think of this? He adds, personally, I don't think John could do the Beatles thing now. I don't think it would be good for him. What the fuck does that mean? I don't know. I've never known. I mean, if John wants to be with Yoko all the time, 
and Paul has been watching John looking miserable in the studio with the Beatles on and off for the past 18 months. I don't know, though. Or maybe Paul has heard what John has been saying. I mean, John has said several times over and over again that working with Paul makes him feel bad about himself. Mm. I keep circling back to jealousy because John says it bluntly. Yeah. In the get back tapes, he says it. Mm -hmm. I'm just trying to decide, is it enough? Because if it is enough, then I would have to swallow my ego for you and smother my jealousy of you. That's not a healthy thing to have to do every day. Yeah. And yeah. he's he's reiterated it several times. <laughs> like it's a problem. Listen, if we have it on tape twice, Jesus Christ. How many times did he actually say it to Paul? To Paul's face. More than twice would be my guess. And how many times has Paul brought up John's jealousy? Several but... times. Yeah, I never thought of that. That that's what Paul is means when he says it wouldn't be good for him. John's in love with Yoko. And he's no longer in love with the other three of us. And let's face it, we were in love with the Beatles as much as anyone. We are still like brothers and we have enormous emotional ties because we were the only four that it all happened to who went right through those 10 years. I think the other three are the most honest, sincere men I have ever met. I love them. I really do. <sighs> So many times I've read that first line isolated from the rest of the paragraph, followed by some one note analysis that is always exactly the same. Bob Spitz was the first to write it. John's in love with Yoko and he's no longer in love with the other three of us. But Paul might as well have been speaking about himself. That is every author's favorite thing. Yes, it There's, is. Like, I read it over and over again, but I don't know what that interpretation is based on. If you read the whole paragraph, Paul says, John is no longer in love with the three of us and then continues to discuss the Beatles as a band and as four people who were once very committed to that band. Let's face it. We were in love with the Beatles as much as anyone. We are still like brothers. And we have enormous emotional ties because we were the only four that it all happened to. They are three of the most sincere men. I love them. They're great people. However, you know. Yes, so that's a really good point. What he's saying here is like, John is not in it anymore. So it's not good for us. Like, let's just call it a day. Mm -hmm. He's not saying John fell out of love with me personally at all see it i think it's a fair interpretation paul can be doing both things he could i just don't think he is in this instance i think authors like spitz and others are extrapolating this to mean i guess that paul is saying john still loves george and ringo but not him or that's yeah. just their personal opinion and then they're using paul's quote to pivot into their opinions which is fine if that's your opinion and you state it as an opinion but like it could be what the author thinks i just don't think it's what paul is saying mm -hmm. 
yeah, it, it should be left in context. But I still think it's fair because Paul is notorious for using the royal we. He does it all the time. And so I, I think it's fair that in that first part, he's he's certainly, you know, no matter what, he's going to be the most concerned about how John feels about him personally. I agree, but I think John being in love with the Beatles is separate from John being in love with Paul. I don't that's think they true. are the same thing. Well, that's true. That's true. And furthermore, Paul has a really good and heartbreaking point, which is that if John is advocating for the Beatles to become an open marriage, in effect, where Yoko or Bob Dylan or Eric Clapton or whoever the fuck can be Beatles if they want if Beatles is just a name for a group of people who meet up once a year and make a record that makes lots of money but otherwise means nothing like if they're just like the plastic beetle band right mm -hmm. then Paul's right John has fallen out of love with the Beatles because that's never what the Beatles were we, we know what the Beatles were they were a four-headed monster Remember in 1965 when John said there are only about a hundred people around the world who understand our music? Mm-hmm. Yep. George, Paul, and a few friends around the world. He said Beatles are really the only people who can play Beatle music. Yeah. So Paul is a hundred percent right. There was no one more in love with the Beatles than the Beatles, and specifically <laughs> John Lennon. Yeah. So I think it's totally reasonable for Paul to say, well, that was a blast, but clearly it's over. So yeah. let's just let it go. Yeah. We read significance and, and subtext into all kinds of things. So I'm not saying that it's not okay to do that. I mean, who am I to lecture people on, you know, reading significance into <laughs> something? I, I'm not. Yeah. I'm just saying like. Well, but like you say, it's that it's looked at in such a two-dimensional way it's taken out of context and it's assumed to mean only one thing and it's assumed to be some sort of uh referendum on their dynamic previous to this well paul was always in love with john but not vice versa in context paul is very clearly talking about the beatles as an entity like you don't want to be the beatles but you just want to continue on with the beatle name no mm -hmm. like the beatles was a beautiful thing that we all believed in and if you don't believe in it anymore then just fucking say that yeah oh okay so paul continues i don't mind being bound to them as a friend i like that idea I don't mind being bound to them musically because I like the others as musical partners. I like being in their band. But for my own sanity, we must change the business arrangements we have. Only by being completely free of each other financially will we ever have any chance of coming back together as friends. Oh, okay. That's a lot. For my own sanity, we must change the business arrangements we have. I've never seen that before. Well, I know. And why not? That's the part that's really frustrating to me. And to read, you know, the book that shall remain nameless, <clears throat> um, <laughs> to, to read certain very popular books about the breakup, all we get is this constant, like, Paul's being 
emotional paul's on his period you know like paul's having a hissy fit <laughs> paul's hysterical and can't he's compartmentalize <laughs> bro he is not yeah he is very rational and very clear-eyed and he's saying i love them they're great people mm-hmm. he called them like the most sincere and awesome people he's ever known yeah which is a lot and he says i like playing with them this isn't about me not wanting to be their friend or their musical partners i do want those things i just we're in a financial situation that needs to be severed yeah and that's the only way we can continue to be friends yeah which is reasonable it is reasonable and he's also saying like we are not going to be able to continue to be friends if this situation is allowed to fester and continue Mm -hmm. and he's right i mean this is enough of a warning of that lawsuit i mean he he can't be more transparent and explicit personally i would like to see an independent panel of experts work out how the beatles could be given their independent finances so that on their individual things they could get the rewards for their efforts Beatles things would, of course, still be shared. We should all have our independent incomes and let us work out for ourselves the accompanying problems. Klein says it's impossible for tax reasons, but I'm not convinced that it couldn't be done. After all the years of work, all I've got to show is money locked up in a big company. Strictly speaking, we all have to ask each other's permission before any of us does anything without the other three. My own record nearly didn't come out because Klein and some of the others thought it would be too near to the date of the next Beatles album. I had to get George, who's a director of Apple, to authorize its release for me. Give us our freedom, which we so richly deserve. We are beginning now to only call each other when we have bad news. The other day, Ringo came around to see me with a letter from the others, and I called him everything under the sun. But it's all business. I don't want to fall out with Ringo. I like Ringo. I think he's great. We're all talking about peace and love, but really we're not feeling peaceful at all. There's no one who's to blame. We were fools to get ourselves into the situation in the first place, but it's not a comfortable situation for me to work in as an artist. Whew. Okay. Again, you know, very transparent, rational, He's on the record here, explaining the problem, why it's unworkable, and bending over backwards to say it's no one's fault. Yeah. So uh, the thing about tax reasons, I, Paul is right. He's like, I'm not convinced that it can't be done. Of course it can't. I just love that he's putting Klein on such incredible blast. Like, he's like, yes. by the way, this is what the so-called Beatles manager told me when I suggested this. Mm-hmm. He said it wasn't possible for tax reasons. Like all of this, I think, is going to end up in the court proceeding. Yeah. Well, and this is what this is John's uh, comeback to Paul saying that he wants out. John writes back, but what about the tax? No details about the tax. That's ridiculous. Like if if the government wants their taxes, they'll get their taxes. Like there's there there is no such thing as like well we can't for tax reasons. Like you can't always protect like you there's always a way to pay more taxes you know 
Like it might, you might end up having to pay more. Well, that's, that's what I think is their problem. So, yeah. are, so it's going to cost a little bit of money to, to mm -hmm. do this divorce. Well, then we need to pony it up and split it four ways and get it done. Well, for sure. Sometimes the cheapest way to pay for something is with money. And it's frustrating that George tells Howard Smith on May 1st, this is all an elaborate tantrum on Paul's part, basically. He's not like, wish we could help, but, you know, taxes. He's like, tough shit for Paul, because we chose Klein, and we're doing what's best for the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Paul thinks he always knows what's best. But in this particular <laughs> special instance, uh, this is what I mean about them choosing the wrong battles. But they, they just must not have thought he would ever do it. And that's what Klein must have been telling them, too. Like, he can't do anything. He's he's under contract. He signed that EMI deal in September. You can get out of any contract. I know. Renegotiating okay. contracts is... I mean, it, standard. It happens it, all the time. I, well, you know what, though? Like, in fairness, they're getting bad advice. Well, that's exactly. They're getting everything through the con man, like you yes. said earlier. So yeah. he's given a little olive branch to Ringo. Again, I don't want to fall out with Ringo. And, you know, the fact that he says no one is to blame. We shouldn't have done this in the, you know, we shouldn't have gotten ourselves into this situation in the <laughs> first place if we could what go is... back in time. Right. What is he talking about there, though? Apple or hiring Klein? No, I think signing did... the original contract in 67. Oh, which is oh. so sad because they were, mm -hmm. you know, they were all still besties in 1967. Okay, so let's discuss that contract. <laughs> Connolly writes, basically, Paul's worry over their business affairs is over a contract signed in July 1967, which ties all four Beatles together financially until 1977. Thus, the profits from all of their activities, with the exception of songwriting, are paid into Apple, the company that the four of them own. But under the agreement, none of the four is able to earn separately. Thus, John's Plasticono Band records and Paul's individual record productions are treated in exactly the same way financially as their Beatle material. And in the same way, the Lennon-McCartney agreement with Northern Songs disregards the fact that John wrote Instant Karma by himself, and that all the songs on Paul's album were written by him alone. They must both share the royalties for all their songs. So it's easy to see why this is a bad idea <laughs> once the Beatles have broken up. But let's talk about the original agreement. The outrageousness of it. Okay, all four Beatles sharing everything besides songwriting royalties equally. This was in July 1967. So just after All You Need Is Love was recorded. It's the month where they go to Greece to try out that communal living on the Greek mm -hmm. island. Mm -hmm. It's just an extraordinary willingness to bind themselves together for the next 10 years. I know. They've been together for 10 years already. And, and they're... they're, they're ready for another 10 yeah they're willing to make a 10-year commitment to share everything equally not just to work together but to literally share everything equally think about how close yeah. and secure you need to be with somebody to do that yeah 
when the stakes are this high. And no one was more gung-ho about it than John Lennon. Right? The, the mastermind of the Greek island commune. <laughs> yes. The man of, I think you need the Beatles more than they need you. Yeah, so just, just to clarify. So, songwriting royalties, meaning whoever writes the song, if it's performed by someone else, they're the only one the only one get paid gets. for that yeah but anytime a beetle record is played yes they all get equal yes yes which is cool it is very cool and i would argue that is fair yeah me too. however i'm just saying isn't it cool that it's fair <laughs> right so this is less than a year before everything goes to shit something went really wrong really fast yeah, and it happened abruptly. That is a stark reminder. I feel like we can never say that enough. I know. Yeah, because there's it's so often discussed as like as if it was this long, slow, predictable. It didn't happen gradually, and they didn't grow apart. That's the other thing. That's it's like at this point saying that they grew apart in India is absurd. Mm. Well, they were only there for two months, so that's some fast growing. And in July of 1967, they're like, yes, we'll be together for another 10 years. We will share literally all of our income, like all mm -hmm. of our income. Yeah. We'll go directly into this pot and we'll split it four ways for the next 10 years. That's wild. Mm -hmm. It is. And then 10 months later, you're telling me something didn't happen? No, it, it was a, it was a, you know, Earth's crust displacement. It wasn't continental drift right there's an earthquake Connolly then writes the final breakup in the lennon mccartney part came he thinks about 18 months ago although for the past three or four years the vast majority of their songs had been individual efforts which i don't even know if that's true i mean i think that could be disputed i i think it would be more accurate to say for the past three or four years the vast majority of the songs had been mostly individual efforts yeah but yeah. with Get Back, it's pretty obvious that they're they're still co-writing, even if it's just yeah. a little bit here and there. Mm -hmm. So maybe Paul is kind of having his own moment of, I mean, he doesn't date it all the way back to 63 or whatever, or whatever John does. But maybe he's also having a moment of being a little disenchanted with things. And so now when he looks back, it, he, it seems like they worked less closely than they did. It could be. Or or it could be that, that uh Connolly is just extrapolating that, or that he's basing that off of conversations that he had with John. Well, that's true. That's true. Because that this is Connolly writing. This isn't, mm -hmm. you know, a quote from Paul, but Yeah, that's true. So yeah, he might be paraphrasing Paul, or he might have heard this from John. Or read it from John. So back to Paul. Paul says It simply became very difficult for me to write with Yoko sitting there. If I had to think of a line, I started getting very nervous. I might want to say something like, I love you, girl. But with Yoko watching, I always felt that I had to come out with something clever and avant-garde. She would probably have loved the simple stuff, but I was scared. I'm not blaming her. I'm blaming me. You can't blame John for falling in love with Yoko any more than you can blame me for falling in love with Linda. We tried writing together a few more times, but I think we both decided it would be easier to work separately. 
I told John on the phone the other day that at the beginning of last year, I was annoyed with him. I was jealous because of Yoko and afraid about the breakup of a great musical partnership. It's taken me a year to realize that they were in love, just like Linda and me. So this is this is probably the biggest chunk that I have definitely seen quoted in total. So hearing it now, my first question is, when Paul says, I was jealous because of Yoko and afraid about the breakup of a great musical partnership, it's taken me a year to realize they were in love, just like me and Linda. Is he saying that he said that to John on the phone? Or is he just saying that for the record now? Wow. I mean, you could read it either way. It's it's ambiguous. Yeah. I mean, I'm a little skeptical that he told John all of that directly over the phone. It's a little hard to imagine, but... It, it is a little hard to imagine. So I'm leaning towards the way I've always taken it, which is that... <laughs> I told John on the phone the other day that at the beginning of last year, I was annoyed with him, period. Well, he must have, he must have given him a re some reason why he was annoyed with him. You can't just leave it at, I was annoyed with you. But we know he said, I'm doing what you and Yoko did last year. So let's say that he told him some version of this. Yeah. You know, last year I was annoyed with you for doing this, but I understand where you're coming from now. I mean, I guess we can't know. We cannot know. Nope. But he's saying it to the paper. That's incredible. That's really incredible it is i mean you want to talk about courageous and transparent i agree i 100 percent agree and it's been used against him ever since i know it was very difficult for me to write with yoko sitting there god bless him for saying that and it it still makes me insane that people aren't sympathetic to that like, you don't have to demonize Yoko. Of course and, not. And, and say she broke up the band to be sympathetic to Paul in that situation. Of course not. Because it's weird and uncomfortable. Yeah. How many times has Paul said what a personal, private process writing is for him? And he says, I'm not blaming her. Yeah. He says scared again here, which is kind of interesting. Well, and he, he's also said that John and, and Yoko were very formidable, uh -huh. which, as we've argued, was probably a lot of the point as well. Yeah, John needed backup. Mm -hmm. and, and we said before, I think the terror is mutual between John and Paul. I think they're equally afraid of each other. Yes, but Paul's the only one talking about it. Although, you know, I do. I also do think that Paul has anxiety sure so he might be you know talking about that here too it might affect him more yoko being there might affect him even more than the average person might yeah. make him you know that the, anxious. yes that's true and i mean john has uh anxiety and and depression and out of control paranoia as well of course and yeah. i mean you that should be obvious by the fact that he has a human security blanket with him at all times mm -hmm. yeah. um so again not saying that it was an easy situation for john we've made the case well you know that it was not an easy situation for john 
or else he wouldn't have done this. <laughs> right. Let's talk it's about... taken me a year <laughs> yeah. to realize they were in love. Is exactly I don't I don't know what that means. I don't know what that means. Does that mean that Paul never understood love really until he met Linda? Does that mean he thought mm. it was all a charade? Does that mean I don't know that he thought Yoko was there for other reasons? Well, that's true. Connolly <laughs> Connolly prints it as two thoughts, like two sentences. Like, did Paul just take a weird pause or is he saying two different things? It's taken me a year to realize they were in love, period. Just like Linda and me, afterthought. Or is he saying, like, it's taken me a year to realize that they were in love the same way we're in love? And right. what is there any difference? <laughs> I mean, right. Yeah. I don't know maybe it maybe it has to do with his initial thought of like well maybe this is just john's flavor of the month yeah and it'll pass because how well, can yeah. this relationship possibly be sustainable any relationship that starts out by being that bizarre you don't necessarily think it's gonna last right well, not to mention that, I mean, Yoko's a known entity by the time John starts dating her. Can yeah. you believe that none of the other Beatles ever mentioned that? That she was stalking him? Paul is the only one to mention it. Does he even talk about it? Um... Like the the phone calls and the throwing herself in front of his car and threatening suicide. and Well, he might not have known about any of that. She did show up at the studio. Yeah. Which is, that's the part that Paul obviously knows about that. Yeah, and he's never said. No, wow. even though, like, we, it's on the record. Like, we know she showed up to a Fool on the Hill recording. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, so that's a big untalked about thing. Uh -huh. She lobbied Brian Epstein for sponsorship, and she lobbied Hunter Davies for sponsorship and or, you know, some publicity. Uh-huh while he was doing the beetle bio in 1967 so and she showed up to a beatles recording session in 1967 she's definitely on the right like it's not it's not a matter of opinion it's a matter of fact it's very very weird not to mention like whatever like unethical and suspicious it's weird that nobody talks about that when they yeah. present her in a in the beatles narrative mm, they just skip right to the well and the, and it's all it's always presented like oh paul was taken aback that john was dating this woman it was like well was he or was he taken aback that john all of a sudden was ride or die with the annoying yeah. woman who had been pestering them for a year <laughs> you know yeah yeah, maybe that's part of this. He's like, well, this can't, John can't seriously. Although he, he seems to feel pretty adamant about it in 69. And he just starts dating her. And then a week later, he's like, I'm willing to break up my marriage with. Like, objectively, that's kind of concerning. It's very concerning. And, you know, like, as he said, I warmed up to her. It was awkward. Anyway, the point being like, there are pretty reasonable reasons why 
he would be he would be a little confused about their whirlwind romance in 1968 yeah. so yeah i do think that that paul is jealous and because they have established that they have an intimate exclusive yes. uh, creative relationship yeah so for john to bring another person you know into this against paul's will and without consulting him and without asking if he's okay with it at any point mm -hmm. like of course that's going to upset paul I think that's pretty uh, obvious and it's weird to turn that around on paul you know yeah we need to fix the way that we talk about this yeah paul was jealous it's not that we can't talk about his jealousy but it's just like <laughs> i hate that being reduced to like i said no i said no girls allowed john oh my gosh no yeah. girls allowed in this clubhouse Mm -hmm. okay so let's take <laughs> girls out of the equation again let's say that it's donovan like so paul would be allowed to bring donovan in every day to the studio and, and donovan would be allowed to like give his opinions on what the beatles should be doing musically well everyone would know that paul was trying to make donovan a beetle or was trying to you know upset john or make him jealous yeah well by making donovan a beetle <laughs> yeah right <laughs> yeah well i think that part of that might stem from the idea that because john is the leader he has the right to set the terms of any of his relationships so let's talk a bit more about jealousy because we think that jealousy in all its many forms <laughs> is hugely important to the Lennon-McCartney relationship, especially with regard to the breakup. This can be a difficult topic because jealousy can have connotations that people don't like and cause them to bristle. And it can be triggering for people too, if they've mm -hmm. had to deal with jealousy in their relationships. But like we said, we think it's an important contributing factor to the breakup here, uh, specifically jealousy between John and Paul. And there are many different shades of jealousy envy is different from possessiveness which is different from competitiveness yeah and i think john and paul exhibit all of these at different times in different ways sometimes it's professional and sometimes it's personal and then there are still lots of different threads to that yes. sometimes those overlap yeah so we're going to discuss how we think these jealousy issues affect the Beatles and specifically the disintegration of the band. The biggest example is the one we've already introduced, which is that Paul's professional confidence has emotional impact on John. Yeah, that's definitely important and has been brought up several times by John. And it's extremely sad, and it's no reflection on John's own worth as an artist. He does not need right. to feel inferior to yes. Paul. We yeah, don't think no, that at all. No, no, not at all. It's like he said, it's a, it's a personal problem. In, in some ways, it doesn't have anything to do with Paul. Mm -hmm. But Paul's success, not just in terms of dollars or chart ranking or whatever, but just even Paul's artistic achievements do seem to make john feel bad or lesser which means that after the breakup he has an outsized investment in paul failing 
or being perceived as failing, especially in public. And a certain amount of that is normal, I think. Yeah. Yeah. When you're competitive with someone, it can be intimidating or deflating to see them score a huge victory. Yeah, absolutely. And likewise, like if you're nervous about the science fair or whatever, and you walk into the auditorium <laughs> and you look around and you're unimpressed with the competition, it's normal for that to be a confidence booster. Sure. In an ideal scenario, you would find that competition exciting and it spurs you to up your game. But where it gets toxic, I think, is when you're constantly measuring yourself against another competitor, which unfortunately is what I think happens with John after 1968. And the part where it gets concerning is when it reaches the level of obsession and magical thinking which yeah. is where i think john gets post breakup and basically lives with the exception of the maypang period in the mid 70s for the rest of his life yeah in lennon remembers jan wenner asks about let it be and the mccartney album and john says he thought paul wanted mccartney to come out close to let it be so it would look like Paul was the Beatles, which is interesting, not because I think that that theory has any validity, but because we know Let It Be was the date that kept moving. Well, and Ringo released an album at the same time, so whatever. Right, right, right. <laughs> but that could shed light, though, on why John tried to move the McCartney album all the way to June, like we discussed in the last episode, because there was no rational reason for john to do that john and george wrote the memo to paul but john was the one who wrote to emi to move paul's date and we theorized that maybe it was just a flex on paul or intimidate him or something which maybe it was um but just another possibility is that maybe john was also trying to put distance between mccartney and let it be because he thought that was too much of a spotlight on paul to have a solo album and let it be because john admits he was expecting something really good from the mccartney album and was glad when it turned out to be <laughs> you know this modest and for for most people underwhelming mm -hmm. album i think he wanted to show he was the beatles you know by bringing out mccartney i think so you know were you surprised when you heard it at what he had done yeah, I was surprised it was so poor, you know. Well, not a full scale. I expected just a little more, you know. I mean, cause, because if Paul and I are sort of disagreeing and I feel weak, I think he must feel strong, you know. That's in an argument. Oh, not that we've had a much physical argument, you know, or mental one of talking, but you expect <coughs> the opposition so-called so I was just surprised, you know, and uh, I was glad to, you know, <laughs> I was, I thought, yeah, I, you know, I, was, I suddenly got it all in perspective, you know. So obviously the headline there is that John feels like Lennon-McCartney is a zero-sum game. Yeah, but... The other interesting takeaway there is that John is saying he felt weak at that time in, you know, March and April, waiting for McCartney to be released. Right. 
which is wild because we're talking about him like he's on a power trip and he's saying that he felt weak and he thought paul had all the power it's almost like john power tripping is a cover for something yeah but mm. that like that's interesting though that makes things a little difficult to you know like it, it, things are not True. quite as simple as as they see they appear to be right i mean yeah. that's the main thing that i took away from that and then once mccartney comes out and john isn't super impressed by it or you know rolling stone ran a bad review of it to please him and <laughs> then the rest of the journalists started to trash it john eventually got the boost he needed to either believe in himself or the you know competitive drive to make a better record than paul's one question i always have is like when did it get like this yeah because some people sort of like take Lennon remembers and like retroactively apply it to their whole relationship and I don't think it was always like that I agree I, I think when they were together they were able for the most part to share the glory and the praise to bask in that glow together and that allowed them to be proud of each other and what they made together and it made them generous towards each other and supportive of you know the family name yes if, exactly because if you're married you have to be on the same team and right. prior to 1968 they really weren't singled out much mm -hmm. like if if eleanor rigby won an award or yesterday or whatever it was given to the beatles you know penny lane and strawberry fields were beetle compositions not john or paul yeah which is again is another vital reason why that lennon mccartney credit is important because it keeps them together yeah and it keeps a lid on their competition Ooh, that's true oh yeah. if things started getting divided oof. right then they're really competing against each other instead of antagonists working together yeah. right yeah so, instead of the image that george martin gave us of two people pulling on either end of the rope but smiling at each other as they did it. Well, I think we only have to look as far as how they treated each other and how other people described them to realize that it was not always like that because people who are yeah. crazy, antagonistically, brutally competitive with each other don't get called soulmates by the people around them or get described as loving each other more than most couples. Yeah. You know, it was a beautiful, delightful feedback loop between the two of them. Well, and the other thing is, like, it's easy to cheer on somebody you love who loves of you. Of course. Of course. It's easy. It's the first thing you want to do. Mm -hmm. If you're worried that that person doesn't love you, then uh -huh. every time they have an achievement without you, you're filled with panic. Oh, Yeah. Once John starts dating Yoko, I think he starts to slowly begin to think of Paul more as a competitor than a collaborator. Mm -hmm. And then by September of 1969, he tells Paul he doesn't want to be partners anymore. Like, we're now really pinpointing it as India. When John started dating Yoko, Paul is definitely saying here in the Evening Standard, that was the end of us. Yeah. That was the end of us. Mm -hmm. So... <laughs> Why? why does he grind on for yeah for yeah. for 18 months like is john just slowly weaning himself off of that paul relationship 
he doesn't leave the Beatles, but he does put an end to their exclusive private collaboration. And mm-hmm. now Yoko is always wedged between them. So is he just trying to wean off of Paul? Like Yoko is his methadone? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Rather than going cold turkey. Right. He's just uh-huh. lessening his consumption down until he feels confident enough to say, like, okay, I'm going to break free now. Maybe. That's a lot of planning for John Lennon, though. Well, he might not have been planning that far in advance, but it might be, have been the sort of natural step down that he needed to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he does kind of allude to that. Like in 1980, he says, I used Yoko. Yes, he I, sure does, doesn't yeah. he? What I did was in my own cowardly way was use Yoko. It was like, now I have the strength to leave because I know there is another uh, another side to life. Like there's this whole other counter narrative. <laughs> like, you know, John is finding his, uh, finding his voice as an artist and he's stepping out on his own. This is never on and- his own. Well, that's the thing. I mean, yeah. it's like he has Yoko attached to his hip the entire time. And he doesn't technically put out a solo album until after Paul does, you know, mm-hmm. until Plastic Ono Band. Yeah. So is he finding himself and asserting his independence or is he merely trying to break away from Paul? Because I don't think he's actually becoming more independent or more secure. No, not at all. I feel like he's actually becoming less so. He absolutely is. But the one thing he is doing is he's becoming less dependent on Paul. For sure. Yeah, no, he 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 enters a an independence and security downslide for the rest of his life. Right. But he did say, you know. Uh, again we we mentioned the two examples he said point blank you know to paul that paul's basically driving him crazy yeah and that he can't work with them anymore because it's making him jealous and it's doing something to his ego i don't know maybe he thought separating from paul would lessen his jealousy and help him focus on himself and his art instead of constantly comparing himself to paul well that didn't work nope refresh yourself it's intermission time okay it's intermission time everybody grab a snack go to the bathroom if you need to because we're not turning this car around (laughs) well i have a delicious soda my favorite coke zero i love coke zero oh it's the best i have some carrot sticks you know, I also eat baby carrots a lot, but I, for some reason, I really prefer oh. carrot sticks. Oh, well, they're infinitely superior. I actually snorted chewed up raw broccoli out my nose one time. Gross. Why? I coughed or I sneezed or something, and it oh, got... Oh, it went down the wrong. Since broccoli is related to the <laughs> mustard family, it was extremely painful. Yeah, I've also had horseradish up my nose. Oh. <laughs> you need to quit sticking things up your nose. <laughs> the show is about to start. Thank you for your cooperation. Enjoy the show, and please come back and visit us again. 